Welcome to the Scalar Learning Podcast, your central hub for all things related to education. Join us every episode for the most up-to-date tips and strategies on how to maximize student potential. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Scalar Learning Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Huzefa. And today we are talking about the constant struggle to have your kids actually listen to you as opposed to tune you out. Now, I'm not a parent, but I am a teacher. I'm a tutor. Um, I was a child at one time, and I know what it's like from the other perspective. I know, Well, I know from both perspectives what it's like when you do actually sort of get, reach a point where you tune somebody out, tune a parent out, whatever it may be, because you don't want to do something. Sometimes it happens. When we're a kid, we don't have full a full grasp of responsibility. We don't have a full understanding. I think really what it comes down to, we don't, our empathy hasn't reached the right level where we don't understand yet that, we don't have that natural feeling of, oh my gosh, this is this is not right to not do something because we're going to make somebody else do it for us. And it, it doesn't trigger that emotion like it maybe does later in life after you have more experience. I know from the standpoint as a teacher and a tutor and working with all sorts of kids all the time, also what it's like when we are you know giving guidance or asking somebody to do something and they ignore you it's not fun and also you you a lot of times uh, well I, as a teacher and tutor all the time you're doing it for the child's benefit and good advice we can give good advice all day in fact i think i think most of the time you're going to be hearing pretty much good advice from adults as a student because it's not the hardest thing in the world to give good advice for the vast majority of things. Do your homework. Uh, get enough sleep. You should be eating properly. You should be trying really hard in school, et cetera, et cetera. Like ev- anybody knows that these are things that are probably going to be good for you. But it's it's something uh, it's a it's a, something else entirely to so you know forget about giving good advice. It's another thing entirely to actually have somebody listen and take it for what it is and apply it. So there seems to be a barrier. It's not about the the value or the or how good something is. It's just there's there's sometimes going to be a barrier where a child or you know even a person doesn't have to be a child but where some but where they don't want to do something that you're telling them to do. How do you get over that? All right. On parents.com came across a really cool article by somebody named named Vicky Glumbaki. And she wrote this really cool article, Five Empowering Ways to Get Your Kids to Listen. So I wanted to share this article today. And she is the parent of young children. It's a pretty cool, it's a it's a very nicely written article and tells the story of, of what's going on, what happened, the old ways that she was doing things, and now the new ways. So this is really cool. So I am going to start right now. 
Having a hard time getting your children to follow directions? Me too. So my friends and I decided to try our own group therapy. A few months ago, I crashed headfirst into my most frustrating parenting problem to date. My daughters were ignoring me. I could tell them five times to do anything, get dressed, turn off the TV, brush their teeth, and they either didn't hear me or didn't listen. So I'd tell them five more times, louder and louder. It seemed the only way I could inspire Blair, six, Drew, four, to action was if I yelled like one of the real housewives of New Jersey. This was not the kind of parent I wanted to be, but their inability to obey or even acknowledge my husband made us feel powerless. While walking through Target one Saturday, I heard no fewer than five parents say some variation of, if you don't start listening, we're walking out of the store right now. I recognized that at least part of the problem was me. After much lamenting about my lame parenting skills, I got lucky. A friend's mom mentioned what she calls the Bible on the subject. A book called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk by Adele Faber and Elaine Maslisch. By the way, that book will be provided in the show notes, so do not worry. When I checked it out at FaberMaslisch.com, I saw that there is an accompanying DIY do-it-yourself workshop for $130. Granted, the authors are moms, not child psychologists or toddler whisperers. But the book was a national bestseller, and parents continue to host workshops using the author's ideas. To see if their advice still had up, I wrangled four equally desperate mom buddies and ordered the workshop. I got two CDs and a guide with directions for leading the group. We met every Tuesday night in my living room for seven weeks, spending much of our 90-minute sessions talking about our struggles with listening, challenged kids, as if we were in a 12-step program. We followed along as actors played out scenarios on the CD, did some role-playing on our own, and completed weekly homework assignments, such as reading parts of How to Talk and Liberated Parents, Liberated Children by the same authors, and then applying our new communication skills. Not all of the advice rang true for us. Their suggestion to post a to-do list on the fridge so we didn't have to keep reminding our kids their responsibilities, for instance, didn't pan out. But other tips truly got our kids to start paying attention. And better yet, got us to stop screaming at them. Carrie, the mom of a six-year-old, summed up our collective reaction by the end. This really works. Yeah, I gotta say, too, I've never believed in yelling. Now, granted, this yeah, I have to caveat this with I don't have kids yet. But that was just something, screaming, just from a human standpoint, I just don't feel like it's worthwhile to do that in any context, whether, you know, you have, you even have attorneys that are known as quote unquote screamers. And what that just tells me is that's somebody who can't control their emotions. We all feel things, we all feel frustration, but I feel, in my opinion, letting it out, screaming, you can, you can be very firm and you can state that you're upset with something. But when you start yelling, I just, I just don't feel like it has any effect, makes people feel defensive, raises the emotional anxiety in the room. And that's my, my, my thought. In fact, I always found it bizarre that it just seems so commonplace and so normal for basketball coaches to be yellers and screamers. Now, I, I get the fact that you're yelling during the game because it's loud. You're trying to communicate. But just the fact that they're so routinely angry and screaming, like you don't need to. I just don't feel like that has to be a staple of of every basketball coach. It just never made sense to me. Uh, and there are coaches that that 
don't yell and that are some of the, you know, the old coach at Michigan in the 90s, I can't remember his name, uh, for the basketball team, he was notoriously, people thought he was a pushover too nice. And I think that was just because he had a reputation of not yelling. But why? Why do you need to scream at your players? It doesn't make sense. All right. Say it with a single word. So now we're going to go through the five things that they tried and that were successful. Okay. One, say it with a single word. The situation. My daughters have only one assigned chore to carry their plates to the sink when they are done eating. Still, not a night went by when I didn't need to tell them to do it, sometimes three times. Well, even that didn't guarantee that they would. And who would finally clear them? Take a guess. All right, so the old way. After they ignored me and repeated I, and my repeated commands, I'd sit them down and preach for 10 minutes about how I wasn't their servant. The better way. Kids usually know what they're supposed to do. They just need some simple reminding. They'll tune you out when you go on and on. Instead, just try one word to jog their memory. The result. After dinner one night, all I said was plates. At first, the girls looked at me confused. Uh, you know, After roughly a month of reinforcement, I didn't need to say anything. They do it automatically. Teeth works equally well for the getting them to brush their teeth, as does shoes to replace my typical morning mantra. Find your shoes and put them on. Find your shoes and put them on. And when I hear Blair screaming, give me that, I simply say, nice words. Okay, that's two words, but <laughs> I practically faint when she says, Drew, would you please give that to me? All right, next, provide information. Okay, so the situation. My friend Michelle had just served lunch when, as was her habit, two-year-old Everly jumped off her chair, climbed back on, turned around, stood up, and then stomped on the cushion. The old way. When Everly wouldn't respond to a patient, you need to sit still. Michelle would get annoyed and say something like, how hard is it to understand? You must sit down. Everly would cry, but still not sit. The end, she'd get a timeout, which didn't change her behavior. The better way. State the facts instead of always issuing commands. Who doesn't rebel against constant orders, said Faber? Kids aren't robots programmed to do our bidding. They need to exercise their free will, which is why we often do exactly the opposite of what why they often do exactly the opposite of what we ask them to do. It's so true. The trick is to turn your directive into a teaching moment. So instead of put that milk away, you might simply say milk spoils when it's left out. This approach says to a child, I know that when you have all the information, you'll do the right thing. Very cool. I love that. You know, that would always frustrate me as a child when when people would tell me to do something and, and I didn't think it made any sense and I wasn't being given an explanation. You know, it just, that's, and that's such a good point. Kids are people. They're not, it's not kids and adults. It's all one continuum, in my opinion. Now, nobody wants to be doing things that don't make sense or that just don't ring true as like something you need to be doing. I think that's such a beautiful thing. You give an explanation, actually show that, hey, like I'm not just having you do random things. This is why. And there's a reason. You want to you wanna ask me, well, why? Okay, I'll actually answer because you deserve to know why. That's fair. And I, I, I like that. All right, the result. The next time Everly played Jungle Gym at mealtime, Michelle took a calming breath and then said, honey, chairs are meant for sitting. Everly smiled at her mother, sat down, and started eating. That never happened before, Michelle reports. She still has to remind her daughter now and then, but in the end, Everly listens. Okay, this is pretty cool. All right, now give your child a choice. 
This one is huge, and I'm going to talk about it in a second. So let's read first. The situation. Three days after our final session, Joan took her kids to Orlando. At the Magic Kingdom, uh, at the Magic Kingdom she handed them hats to shield the sun. Her six-year-old put hers on willingly. Her almost five-year-old son, Sam, refused. The old way. I tried to persuade him to cooperate, Joan says. Inevitably, she'd end up shouting, if you don't put it on, you can't go on any more rides. Then he'd ball his eyes out and no one would have any fun. The better way. Offer your child choices. Threats and punishment don't work, Faber explains on one of the workshop CDs. Rather than feeling sorry for not cooperating, a child tends to become even more stubborn. But when you make him part of the decision, he's far more likely to do what's acceptable to you. The result, Joan left it up to her son. Sam, you can put your hat on now or after you sit out the next ride. Sam still wouldn't comply. But after he missed out on Peter Pan's flight, I said, Sam, here's your hat. And he put it right on, Joan says. Okay. This is this hits on a very important principle. That principle being the psychology behind negotiations now when you okay so there is it's it's probably one of the most popular classes in in law school at least in my law school is called negotiations and it was so much fun we did all these different exercises we learned we read a book called getting to yes amongst other books and articles and it's all about the art of finding a middle ground that's optimal for you uh, oftentimes it'll be optimal in, in a way for both parties, but just basically how to how to get to that point. This can be applied to negotiating a salary, to negotiating a, whatever whatever it may be, a sale, a purchase, a, a hire. And the idea is one one of the key principles. So I have a friend of mine. He used to work as the head of mergers and acquisitions for eBay, and he did this for for several years. He what he always says is. If we're trying to, let's say, let's say we're negotiating a contract, instead of approaching the employer and saying, I need $45,000, that's it, that's what we're doing, uh, take it or leave it, that is a, that is a, it's essentially, that's almost like a hostile way to negotiate. Now, there's maybe certain circumstances where you need to do that, you have to draw a hard line, but the better way is instead to offer some alternatives, offer some options. Okay, option one, you pay me 45000 because this is what I feel is worth for the job. I'll be there to carry out all these tasks. I'll be available for travel, so on and so forth. Now, if you want to ramp it down, I know that uh, the standard rate that you pay is 40000 You want to offer $40,000. That that's option two. But if you do it at that rate, then, I'm go- and then I think it's only fair that since it's going to be five thousand less, then I'll ask for uh, a little bit more vacation time and a little, uh, you know, compensation in other ways. As I think this is the rate, or I'll turn, you know what I mean. So you, what you do is you give them some different options that will that are all still relatively equitable and fair. And that way, they feel empowered. They can choose. They can make a decision. They don't feel trapped, backed against the wall, where they're like, "All right, you know what? Take it or leave it." Well, we're going to have to leave it because. This is putting us in a situation where, and even psychologically, even though the two are equivalent in a sense, like either we pay you 5000 more and get more work out of you, or we pay you 5000 less and get less work out of you, which is fair, it's normal. Psychologically, now you can choose and decide and make a decision, and you don't feel like you're being backed into a corner. So I think it's really effective. Okay. 
Here we go. Next, state your expectations. You notice that these tips are exactly what you should do if you have an employee. It's the same thing. Can't expect them to just do things and know how to get stuff done unless you state these things and communicate. All right, state your expectations. The situation. Amy let her kids turn on the TV before they left for school. After one show was over, she'd take Adrian four to get dressed while Angela seven kept watching. But when it was Angela's turn to get ready, she'd whine. Just 10 more minutes, please, please. The old way. Amy would yell, no, you've watched enough, that's it. Angela would complain some more. Amy would yell, I said no. Then after more begging, she'd add, you've already had more TV than Adrian. You're being ungrateful. The better way. Let your kids know your plan ahead of time. Amy should tell Angela something like, after you've brushed your teeth and are totally dressed and ready to go, you can watch a little more TV while I get your brother dressed. That way, you'll be on time for school. The result. The first time Amy tried this tactic, Angela turned off the TV without saying a word. But the second morning, she refused and started belly aching again. Amy quickly realized she hadn't reminded Angela of the plan in advance this time. So the following morning, she stated it again clearly. When I leave with Adrian, I expect you to turn off the TV. Success. She finds a strategy equally effective for other situations. Okay, next. Name their feelings. The situation. Carrie's daughter, Tatum, was six, happily blowing bubbles with a friend. Suddenly, Tatum stormed into the room, wailing. Mina's not giving me a turn. The old way. I'd say something like, there's no reason to cry over this. Carrie says, what would Tatum do? The opposite. Cry more and likely ruin the rest of the play date. The better way. Parents need to listen, too. Everyone wants to know they've been heard and understood, Faber argues. Telling a child to stop crying sends the message that her feelings don't matter. Kids often cry because they can't communicate why they're upset or don't know how to deal with their, the emotion. You need to give them words to express it, Faber says. The result. Next time, Carrie looked at Tatum in the eye and described what she thought her daughter was feeling. You seem really frustrated. Tatum stared in at her in surprise and then announced, I am. Carrie to held her tongue to keep from giving advice uh, or getting philosophical. Instead, she said, oh, Tatum kept talking. I wish I had two bottles of bubbles. Carrie asked, how can we work this out so it's fair to you and Mina? Tatum said by taking turns. Carrie suggested they use a kitchen timer and Tatum explained that plan to Mina. Everyone wound up happy. It's hard to stop yourself from saying too much, says Carrie. She's right. Phrases like, you never listen to me, and how many times do I have to tell you, become ingrained in our brain. During the workshop, my friends and I realized that it's going to take a bit of practice to stop uttering these expressions. But that's the entire point, to change the way we talk to our kids so they not only understand what we're trying to say, but actually want to listen. And I think, again, I gotta say, I'm not a parent, so I'm sure that there are certain things that just the day-to-day -day probably makes it difficult to enact a lot of these things. But I got to say, the, the main theme that I'm getting from this article is to treat your kids in a more grown-up adult way, That and, and that seems to be the underlying message. Give them some instruction with explanation. Uh, give, give them some options. Actually listen to them. I mean, these are all things that we want as adults or at any point in our lives. Uh, for people to do, which I think is great because it, it makes sense to me. It makes a lot of sense. If you guys want to check out this article, 
You can go to the show notes. The show notes are at www.scalerlearning.com. I'll also put a link to that book that was mentioned as well. And if you guys have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at huzefa at scalerlearning.com. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. That was really fun and educational for me. So hope it was for you as well. Thank you so much for joining. See you guys next time. Take it easy. Yeah.